You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Amen. Okay, so uh, first off, this text isn't in a vacuum, right? We've been walking through Galatians for a couple weeks. Um, And if you've been with us through those weeks, bear with me as I try and catch everybody up. So Paul is writing to a church in the region of Galatia, um, because a different belief is influenced the region, right? It's this, this belief that beyond the saving work of Jesus on the cross, there's something else Christians need to do. And specifically, it's, it's circumcision. But generally, um, there's people saying, hey, beyond just what Jesus did for you, you've got to do blank extra thing, right? Fill in the blank. You've got to do something else to really be saved, to really be counted among God's people. And Paul is saying, uh, no, it's not true. He's saying only Jesus by his death, life, or life, death, and resurrection will we be saved. Only faith in him will save you. So, so the law that they're trying to put you under is slavery, right? When we have to do things in order to gain salvation, that would be slavery, not, not freedom. The freedom of Christ is what we have as brothers and sisters in him. Which is odd that next we go into a list of, so, so with that freedom, don't do a bunch of this stuff. It feels like slavery a little bit, but Paul shows us that, that actually it's not because when the freedom of Christ is grasped in our faith in him, we are free and given the spirit to, to act out that freedom, right? Um, so Paul is saying, yeah, it's not true. This, this extra law that these people want to, to make you abide by, it's not true. Um, and it makes you slaves. So when we get to Galatians 5, Paul starts out at the beginning, as we saw last week, giving this theological case for Christian freedom. And he ends it, so to sum up that, that's why I had us read the end of that section, uh, 13 uh, through 15. Let me read it. He says, For you were called freedom, called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law... It's fulfilled in one word, right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So in four parts, this is what he says in that verse. First, remember your identity, right? You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Remember who you are. You've been set free by the saving work of Jesus, right? And Really, in all of Galatians, we're dealing with this idea of an identity crisis, right? You're heirs, you're co-heirs with, with Jesus as sons and daughters of God, which means you share in his inheritance of the kingdom, right? The kingdom of God is our inheritance as Christians who are free in Christ. Remember that because Paul has a word about the kingdom coming up in, in chapter 5. So first, remember who you are. Second, he says... Uh, he encourages them, right? Love one another, serve one another. Don't use freedom for evil, use freedom for good. Um, third, he teaches them, right? He teaches them why that's the case, right? He says, look, the whole reason you should love each other, the whole reason you should serve each other is because Jesus said in his ministry on earth that the second greatest commandment behind love God is love your neighbor, right? Therefore, instead of Instead of emphasizing the importance of works, right, the importance of circumcision or whatever work you want to put in, Paul says, no, no, Jesus, 
the, the whole law is, is wrapped up in this. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And finally, there's a warning, right? Be careful. Be careful because if you're not using your freedom in the way that loves your neighbor, then, then you'll devour each other, right? He says you will harm each other emotionally and maybe physically. Strong and harsh language for, for a very serious matter for Paul. So let's explore this. So that's kind of the springboard in, into which he jumps into, here's what the desires of the flesh look like, right? In verse 14, it says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So they're opposed, right? They're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, right? Freedom. Linking the freedom we have from the law to having the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And then he says, the, fl- the works of the flesh are evident. Before we read the list, uh, what does this even mean, right? What does it mean to have desires or works of the flesh? We have to flesh that out. Um, sorry, that was bad. It's not even in my notes. That was just... Um, he shows us here what they are, right? But he doesn't tell us, like, why they're called that or what, what that is. And, and to understand the story, to understand works of the flesh, we need to understand the story of God, right? So Paul takes us actually back to the garden, Genesis 1, uh, right at the beginning. Um, right after creation, we have the garden, and then we have the fall, right? And the fall is, is this story that, if you're not familiar with it, um, it's Adam and Eve, first man, first woman, um, communion with God in perfect rest in the garden. And then what happens? They take the fruit and eat it which means they, they say, God, we want our own autonomy, right? We, we want our own. You've said, um, you've said don't do, you can do anything except eat from the fruit because it'll give you knowledge of good and evil, and they take from the fruit and they eat it. This is known as the fall, right? Because it's when sin enters the world. Adam and Eve are all of a sudden aware of their nakedness. Shame, guilt are stirred, and then what, what happens... Murder is the, one of the first things that happens in the Bible, Cain and Abel. Um, sin enters the world, right? <clears throat> so that, that's kind of what, what we're talking about when we say flesh. We're talking about the sin of Adam. That his flesh, instead of prospering, the, the sin of Adam and Eve, instead of prospering with Jesus in the garden, with God in the garden, um, instead their flesh decays and dies, right? Death enters the world. And we know that because of what the Bible says about this, that Adam's sin has, has affected humanity forever, right? So none are without it. We all come from the same lineage, one of fallenness, right? So that's why the Bible says all have fall, fallen short of the glory of God. There's a perfect standard, and in the fall, we all fell from it. And instead, our flesh experiences decay and death, right? That's why... All, one, of the, one of the aspects of Christianity that sets it apart from a lot of other religions is that all of our Old Testament heroes are failures. Right? They all experience sin. Um, it's because we have the imprint of the fall in us. We're born with it. Um, and so 
that's why now, even in Paul's day and now today, we can say something like, the desires of the flesh rule in our hearts. But stick with me for a second because I need to go to a quick detour on, um, on the imagery Paul is using here, right? And this is the gospel. All of humanity has fallen and is sinful. There are no righteous people. Yet, Jesus, God takes the form of man in Jesus, right? Comes to earth, lives a life, and lives a life that is utterly non-sinful, right? He experiences all the temptation to walk in the desires of the flesh, but never succumbs to it. So what, what does that mean, right? It means that at his crucifixion, his sinless flesh is destroyed in place of our sinful flesh. Like literally, his body is destroyed in place of our body. He dies in our place. But the key for this passage that Paul's talking about is he doesn't die forever. He rises again, right? It's the resurrection. We celebrate it every Easter. Which is good news for us in the fall, right? It's called the fall, and especially as Christians, we call it the fall because we rise from it because of Jesus' resurrection. Um, we, when we become Christians at the point of our conversion, which is why we, we usually follow up conversion with baptism, right? We, we die to our old selves, leave the old flesh in the grave, and resurrect as new creations, given the Spirit as a gift, right? That's why when we put our faith in Jesus, and we're given the Holy Spirit as a gift, our flesh no longer rules, is what Paul is saying. This is what the desires of the flesh are, but you don't have the flesh anymore. You have the Spirit. Um, Ezekiel 36, you can turn there briefly if you want. Um, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I, I, I encourage you to go home and spend some time in Ezekiel 36 and 37 this week. Ezekiel 36, we have the prophet, um, the prophet speaking the words of God, and he says, he says these things, things like this in Isaiah 30, or Ezekiel 36. I will take you from all the nations and gather you in your own land, talking about the people of God. I will sprinkle you with clean water and you shall be cleansed. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. Right, this is before Jesus that the Old Testament prophet is predicting um, and prophesying that, that Jesus will come and God will clean us. We have beautiful imagery of what God does for his people, right? He saves them, he cleans them, and if you're still there, the next, the next passage in Ezekiel 37 um, is this narrative of this place called the Valley of Dry Bones. So we have the Lord bring Ezekiel, the prophet, to this valley of essentially corpses, right? Dead bones and this beautiful image of God breathing into them and flesh coming on them again new flesh and them rising with the spirit of God in them what was dead in the flesh in the fall Ezekiel tells us and Jesus fulfills God will breathe life into us again it's the spirit so my point is this right as Christians we are new creations our sinful flesh and all of its desires are dead. Through Jesus, we're new creations that get to walk in the Spirit. We have freedom there. 
This isn't the hope of mine, right? This isn't my hope. Um, It's not something I pray or wish would happen. It's a current reality for us as Christians that that we have the Spirit and that we can walk in it. A present reality, if you're a Christian in the room, is that you are dead and now you're alive and different. And if you'll let me make a gross analogy, this is what's happening. right? When we allow ourselves to delight not in what the spirit delights in, but what the flesh delights in, when we allow ourselves to go down the road of this list of sin, um, we're essentially going to the graveyard and digging up our old corpse. right? We pull our old flesh out of a grave and we say, I'm going to do what you want to do. Not what not what that wants to do. I want to do what you want to do. It's disgusting. But what should we say, right? What should we tell each other when we see each other doing that? No, it's dead. Leave it in the grave. Don't wake it up. So let's see how how these manifest, right? Let's go through the list. I can't spend all day here because we could do like a mini sermon on every single uh, desire of the flesh and, and fruit of the spirit. So I'm going to run through them um, for the most part. So we've got uh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Some of you are like, why did I come today? (laughs) Um, Okay, so I'm going to group them uh, a little bit. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Right? Paul begins the list with sexual sin. Why? Because in his day, it was an identity problem, and in our day, it's an identity problem. We want badly to identify ourselves with sexual activities. Why? Because um, the lie our culture believes, the same as Paul's day, is that sex is the pinnacle of enjoyment. It's a lie. Right? It, it's... The belief of our culture is the highest enjoyment you can have is sex. But, but they don't know or we forget that sex was created by God, right? So he gets to dictate it. So impure, immor, immoral sex, right, sex outside of marriage doesn't lead to intimacy and joy. Those things are found only in God. So the warning is don't worship immoral sex. There's a ton there, I know, but I'm done with it. <laughs> Idolatry, uh, which covers a whole lot, right? It essentially covers everything. Idolatry at its core is placing anything in reverence above God. So uh, the story of Moses, right? The Jewish people are led out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the promised land, and then they fashion a golden calf and worship it. Idolatry, but today the manifest, manifestation of idolatry is different, right? Money, things or status, or comfort, right? We, we could talk all day about that, but we won't. Sorcery, don't read Harry Potter. I'm kidding, it's a complete <laughs> joke. Gosh. Um, this, is, this is really, uh, this is speaking against a desire to be in touch with God through man-created means, right? So yes, seances, yes, like some sort of, Ouija board stuff, but, but really, let me take a quick, um, a quick moment. The root word here in the Greek is pharmakeia, 
which is pharmacy. It's where our modern-day pharmacy word comes from. So really, Paul is saying, don't use drugs for a spiritual experience. So don't use LSD. Don't use marijuana to get closer with God. It's not what it's for. You can't do it. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, cool. And then the big chunk of the community ones, right? Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, all linked as, as relational sins. Now, now, don't be fooled. All of these sins affect other people. There is no sin that happens in a vacuum, just like the, the fruits of the Spirit happen in community, right? We can't be, I, I mean, I can be kind to myself, but the kindness we're talking about here is kind to others. Um, but these happen between people, and they, they stir disunity, right? And Paul's saying that that is always the flesh that stirs disunity, always the flesh. They oppose loving thy neighbor, right? Drunkenness, skipping it and coming back to it. Orgies, which I'm not going to unpack. But essentially, essentially it's this, community and chaos, right? Corrupt and chaos. So drunkenness I'm going to use as an example because it, it works well for an example in thinking about the others. And I think our culture in, in America is really blind to this. So drunkenness is essentially numbing yourself to the things of the world by overusing a substance intended for good. That's right, intended, intended for good. The reality is alcohol is used by God in the Bible to remind us of a future reality, right? That is the wedding banquet where there will be wine. A beautiful picture of our future dwelling with God is celebrating with alcohol. So... Alcohol, when used correctly on earth, it does just that. We celebrate and understand where we belong, who we are, right? It's not a way to check out from reality, but a reminder that we belong in a place of celebration with God. That's why we, we can share a drink with brothers and sisters at a wedding. We can share a drink in community to celebrate our, our reality with God, our communion with God and each other. We can share a drink in honor of a graduation or anything like that. Those are good things. Now, what alcohol is not for is in this drunkenness section is what we're talking about, is a way to forget, right? A way to mask, mask emotion or numb or bring shame or guilt or a social lubricant that allows us to do things that we normally wouldn't do, right? To, to blame it on the alcohol. The alcoholic starts to use alcohol as a way to unwind um, or because others are drinking, but then the alcoholic becomes dependent, right? What was, um, what was a tool used by God for good to celebrate became a friend, and what became a friend became a partner that they needed. Um, alcoholism is a disease, right? And maybe that's not your story, but, but we have to be realistic and know that a quarter of American adults, one in four, are binge drinkers, right? And if one in four Americans struggle with binge drinking and one in two of Americans go to church regularly, then if we do the math, I would bet that some of us struggle with this regularly. So binge drinkers don't drink all the time. And they would probably say, I don't, I don't have a problem with drinking. But when they go drink, they drink a lot either by plan or accident, what does this tell us? 
it tells us that um, regularly our flesh is winning. It tells us that regularly we're going to a graveyard and digging up a corpse. Right? Think of The Hangover. Not the movie. The, the, I'm not endorsing the movie. Just a hangover. Think of hangovers. The binge drinker wakes up sick, and typically the conversation that follows is this. What did I do? Who did I text? Did I cry? Did I get in a fight? Was I flirtatious? The seriousness of drunkenness is that it makes the other fleshly desires a little more easier to submit to. It makes the corpse a little more fun. It shuts up the spirit. When we engage in drinking, we're inviting the old corpse out of the grave in binge drinking, right? And it's, it's dangerous socially, right? Would you invite your old parish to come to the graveyard and dig up their corpses? No, we wouldn't do that. They're dead. Don't wake them up. Don't encourage others to wake them up. So, so those are the desires of the flesh. Paul has harsh words for them, right? He says this, I warned you as I warned before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's scary. What does this mean? Does this mean that, um, that if we fall into one of these things as Christian, that we lose our inheritance and cease to be co-heirs of the kingdom? No, it doesn't mean that. There's a difference, though. There's a difference between the brother and sister who struggle and fall in seasons or in moments to fight the flesh and its desires. There's a difference. There's a difference between that and the brother and sister who isn't fighting, right? Let, let, me, let me show you, right? The world looks at this list and doesn't say those things are bad, right? It celebrates a lot of those things. But, but in our circles, there's dangerous territory. Uh, let me show you what this kind of looks like with a hypothetical. Say a young man who, who struggles, uh, say there's a young man that struggles with looking at pornography, right? He, he knows it's his old dead flesh, and he knows that's what's causing him to look and desire to look, and yet he isn't experience, vic experiencing victory over those desires. What does that look like? For the believer with the spirit, it looks like this. He's grieving sin because he knows that he has the spirit. He's talking with other brothers. They are aware of the sin. He's taking steps to block it. Maybe he's getting rid of a snort smartphone or putting some sort of accountability software on his, his laptop. Or maybe he gets rid of that too. So when he fails in his struggle, is he condemned? No. No, grace to you, brother. Keep fighting, right? This sin isn't you. It's the dead you. You're being sanctified, right? Repent, which just means turn from sin and, be, and, and step into what's true, right? The kingdom is yours to that brother. So live in the freedom that is the reality of your identity. And then there's the, non, or, or then there's the struggler, right? The, the, person who, the other young man who might say, yeah, I struggle with that. But nothing is confessed regularly. Nothing is turned away from. Sin becomes a nightly occurrence. Guilt and shame aren't there. And no screen or phone or software is sacrificed in the fight. Right? Do you see the difference? Jesus says, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. But, but in this case, he can't even delete the browser app. 
Jesus says that because it's a bold, serious, and, and really utterly gracious call to repentance. This is true with alcohol too, right? Some say, yeah, I struggle with that sometimes, but when it comes, when it comes to the weekend, they go, out early, uh, they go out early and stay until the next early morning drinking. Does that sound like a struggle versus the person who, who overdoes it? And grieves before God in community and says, this isn't who I am. This isn't what my spirit desires. Paul says, if you're the struggler, the kingdom might not be for you. That's scary. So we, we do have brothers in here, speaking of alcohol and this lust, I'll say, um, to this, to this desire have said enough. They've said, I, I, I'm not going to do it anymore. I won't drink anything. This desire won't own me, right? And you want to talk about freedom and slavery? If, if saying maybe you shouldn't binge shrink sounds like slavery, talk to our brothers and sisters who have been sober for a decade. And they'll say, no, I'll, I'll tell you what freedom is. Sobriety is freedom for me. Remember, we were dead and now we're alive, right? Keep our flesh in the grave. I wish I could, I could talk more about this, but we don't have time to get to the gracious part if I do. Um, so thank you for bearing with me. Let's continue reading. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, right? Regarding this list, um, or reading this list is a reminder of who Jesus is and what the Spirit of God does to us. And then it says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So this is beautiful for us, right? This is really good for us if you're feeling a little distraught right now. Paul says, those of us who believe and put our faith in Jesus, our flesh is crucified with his and we're given the Spirit through Jesus. This is how we know our God is good, right? And when I see these fruits show themselves in my life, it reminds me that God is doing work, because the truth is, 10, 5, 2 years ago, a lot of these didn't manifest in my life. But let's look at how Jesus is seen in them, because I think it's important to see that Jesus personifies the fruits. And I know I'm running out of time, so I'll go quick. Love, right? Do, do we need to say much more? For, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus willingly comes in our place, takes our punishment. There is no greater love. This is everything, right? Joy, in John 15, Jesus tells them, I have said all of this, so everything I've said is that my joy would be in you and your joy would be made full, right? True joy is what Jesus delivers. Peace, think about Jesus in the garden when they come to take him. A sword is drawn, and Jesus says, put it away. There's no need for that here. Peace. Patience. Jesus, on the night again before his crucifixion, he's praying in the garden, and his disciples, who are supposed to guard his life, fall asleep, not once, not twice, but three times. Jesus has every right to be impatient and angry, and instead, with a gentle uh, response, he says, watch and pray, brothers. Try and stay awake. He's patient. Kindness, Jesus and the children, right? There's infants and toddlers 
running to Jesus and the disciples start to say, get away, kids. They rebuke the children. And Jesus says, no, let them come. The kingdom belongs to these ones. He's kind. Goodness, uh, the woman empties an expensive bottle of perfume. The disciples start to rebuke her and say, you could have sold this and given it to the poor. And Jesus says, don't bother her. She has done a beautiful thing. He's good to her. Faithfulness, I mean, of course he embodies this, right? Faithful to Peter after three denials. Faithful to us in our disobedience. Faithful to us in taking our punishment. Faithful to us in restoring us. Faithful in adopting us and sharing his inheritance with us. No man more faithful in history. Gentleness, again, Peter denies him three times, invited to a meal with Jesus, sits in his shame with Jesus over a fire, and Jesus says, I'll cook for you. Gentle in a fragile time of shame and guilt. He's gentle and self-controlled, right? Jesus on his way to the cross, he's mocked and spit at, crown of thorns shoved on his head. This is God, God of the universe, spoke the stars into being God. And he doesn't retaliate. Doesn't say a word. Self-controlled. This is our God, right? He died on our behalf. So you could be free from the desires of the flesh and walk in the spirit. Beautiful that on top of that, we're given the spirit of God to walk in these fruits that will be produced in us. It's a promise And the good news is that because Jesus embodies all the fruits of the Spirit by our faith in him and his grace to us, we actually have the current, right now, ability to produce them and to deny the desires of the flesh, right? And sometimes it's painful, right? I think about uh, Mike and I planted an orange tree in our backyard, and it's produced one orange over the last nine months, and that that branch is like bending super far down and everything else is doing all right and it's straining and it looks like it's going to break. I wanted the tree to be full of oranges, but it's just got one. But that's one more than it had nine months ago, right? And it's, it's growing. It takes time, but it's growing. So God is gracious with us here. He says this will take time. Right? And, and to remind us of Paul's audience, the Galatians are tempted to believe that they need to add to the gospel. Right, They need to add something. But Paul says, no law contradicts these fruits. You're thinking you're adding the law, but the law is fulfilled in the fruits of the Spirit. Right, Nothing contradicts them. That's how we know it's freedom. That's how we know it's the Spirit, the fruits. Okay, let's, let's finish up. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The Christian life regarding sin and fruit looks like this. A lot of walking in repentance, and a lot of accountability, and a lot of grieving over sin. But a lot of joy, a lot of fruit coming to fruition, more patience, more gentleness, more kindness, more peaceful, more self-controlled. It's a gift from the Spirit that these things come, right? Do we believe that? And the grace for us this morning is it's a current reality, not a future one. The, 
the passages regarding desires of the flesh and fruits of the spirit are sandwiched between two verses about community, right? Be careful not to devour each other, right? And don't, um, don't become conceited and envy one another. It's a reminder that the spirit stirs unity and the flesh stirs disunity, right? This is, this is communal for us. Okay, so two audiences. First, uh, to the unbeliever in the room, I say this. This sounds weird to you, talking about flesh and corpses. But here's the thing. The Christian God demands of us perfection. And unlike any other religion, the Christian God delivers perfection for us. Right? In the form of Jesus on our behalf. And he gives us the Holy Spirit that enables us to live into perfection. So more gracious than any other belief is that we don't have to do anything, but we get to be who we were designed to be by the power of the Spirit. So I invite you to stop chasing the desires of the flesh that have ruled your life up to this point because they're not, they will not bring these things in you. They will not bring joy or kindness or love. I invite you to bury your flesh and rise as a new creation. And to the believer um, in the room who, who is struggling, I don't want to cause a crisis of faith in you, right? But if you are walking uh, in step with the flesh's, the flesh's desires and you believe that you're a co-heir yet you don't see any of those fruit, then I do want to cause a crisis of faith in you. It's, it's actually the most loving thing that I could possibly do, right? When we as brothers and sisters approach one another with issues of sin, let us never forget that this is what we have in mind. God says here through Paul that if we fall, uh, if we fail to live toward the desires of the flesh without a heart of repentance, right? So if we, if we live towards the desires of the flesh and we never experience a heart of repentance, then he says the kingdom isn't for you. And we take that seriously around here, right? We can't, we can't just dismiss that. It would be a grave error to do so. It would be unloving, holy, unloving, and gracious, ungracious. But we might have conversations with you to that end that will always be or always strive to be marked by the fruits of the Spirit, gentle, kind, and loving. If you experience conversations with each other like that, remember that they're for our good. So maybe you heard these words and you're thinking, man, maybe the kingdom isn't for me. Maybe your real struggle you're realizing has only been a struggle. Maybe you haven't fought sin. You're right to be worried. The kingdom of God may not be for you, but simultaneously, if you feel convicted right now that maybe you need to get more serious about sin, then you should be assured this morning. Because the Holy Spirit is a gift inside you that is stirring and rising up and beckoning you to follow Jesus. And if that's happening to you this morning, then the kingdom is for you. But follow the Spirit. If he's leading you to true holy repentance, be assured that the kingdom is for you. Right? But... But remember this, be assured that the Spirit of God is in you because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Right? Not because what you did in walking in repentance. Not because 
you've turned from sin, not because you work really hard to produce fruit yourself, but because what Jesus has done. That's why the kingdom is for us. Not for how well we check the boxes, because Jesus has done it. Now, we are co-heirs, so far be it from us to dig up our old flesh. May the day never come that as communities we stop putting dead flesh in its place in the ground. Let's fight the fight, not through our own power, but through the power of him who has given us everything. He says, my power is made best in weakness. So if you feel weak this morning, praise God. His power is made best in weakness. We have victory because of that. Let's pray. Father God, we need your grace. We need, um, we need to be reminded of it, Lord. And let us not forget that when you call us to repentance, it's your grace and love and mercy on us, not your anger or wrath, even though you hate sin. When you call us to repentance, it's out of love. Because when we come to your cross and kneel in confession and repentance, you see Jesus on our behalf. Lord, let that be good to our soul this morning. I pray for the brothers and sisters in this room that are, uh, are concerned. Lord, would you remind them um, that the kingdom is theirs if their spirit is welling up within them and remind them what being co-heirs looks like. Lord, you've been gracious to us. Lord, we love you. Jesus, when, when we hear of what you've done on our behalf, we worship. Would you help us worship? And as we come to the table this morning, Willard, would you remind us of just the flesh, uh, the flesh and blood that you sacrificed on our behalf was? And Lord, would you help us walk in purity of spirit, in love with each other, Lord, loving each other as we love ourselves? Would you make this so by your power, Lord? We love you. We confess that we're imperfect. Lord, I confess that I'm imperfect, that I'm tempted to chase the desires of the flesh, Lord, but I know that's not who I am, that that's a dead corpse, and I want to leave it in the grave. Help me. Help us. And we know you answer that. You've promised it, and it will be so. We love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.